In today's episode, we turn to Mark chapter 13. Jesus delivers an urgent warning to his disciples about tumultuous events that are going to come before his return. False messiahs, wars, natural disasters, and persecution. He advises them to stay alert and steadfast in their faith despite the trials ahead because the Son of Man's return will be sudden and only the Father knows the hour. Good morning and blessed Pentecost. Today is Monday, November 20th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word, where each weekday morning we explore the Holy Scriptures uh, through which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Thy Strong Word is brought to you in part by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. You can learn more about their translating and publishing work on their website at lhfmissions.org. Well, my guest this morning to help us open up Mark chapter 13 is the Reverend Peter Burfind, pastor of Agnes Day Lutheran Church in Marshall, Michigan, and Our Savior Lutheran Church in Union City, Michigan. Good morning, Pastor. Welcome to the program. Good morning, Pastor. Thanks for having me on today. Oh, it's great to have you on. Now, I know that you're no stranger to radio. You are on Issues Etc. You've been on this very program with my predecessor, but I do believe this is the first time that you've been a guest with me. So I think it'd be great. It is. It is. Great. Well, I think it'd be wonderful you would share a little bit about your ministry, who you are, and how God's working through you and the saints of the congregations you serve. Well, I got a dual parish in southern Michigan. Um, it keeps me very busy. I'm also an army chaplain, and and that that's what I always call the three-legged stool of of my ministry. Oh, sure. Um, both churches are in a rural area, and uh, like I say, they, they it, it keeps me busy. There's always something going on, but but it's a, a lot of joy. Both ministries are are tons of joy. Well, excellent. Well, I'm glad that you're able to spare a little time. It sounds like you're a pretty busy guy uh, to be on the program. Yeah. Why don't we go ahead and begin our time together in prayer? And I invite you to lead us in that prayer, please, brother. Very good. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Gracious Heavenly Father, who patiently provides this season of repentance and testimony of the gospel, enlighten our eyes by your Holy Spirit, that we may understand your Son's teaching on the last days and bear fruits of repentance, faith, and thanksgiving. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. All right, well, let's look at our text for today. So the, the last time we got together, which was on Friday, we had Jesus talking about the widow's offering, the widow's might. Jesus ended by saying, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they contributed mm -hmm. out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. And with that message, you know, we, we, <laughs> we ended our time last time. Now today, on Monday, we're picking up as Jesus is coming out of the temple where that happened. And I, we're going to get through the whole, the whole chapter today, but there's a lot of good stuff about the end times. Uh, but before we even read anything, is there anything else from what we've already covered or what Mark has already covered that you'd like the people to know? No, yeah, that's just that's exactly how Luke has it started out too. Is is you know they're looking at the temple and and Jesus is pointing out the widow's might, and then that segues right into this into this uh, the dis disciples looking at the temple and kind of overwhelmed by the, all the stones and everything there, and, and yeah, that that leads right into the into the. And times discourse that Jesus. Well, had. let's read the first three verses then. Uh, pardon me, the first, just do the first two verses. 
And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. All right, so that's just the first two verses, but you know, that's enough, uh, that's enough of a comment from Jesus to get him into some pretty yeah. big trouble later. But, uh, but we know that he's talking about, well, frankly, all kinds of things, uh, but this is a prophecy. It also for foreshadows, but, uh, t- take us through this brother. What, you know, why are the disciples so impressed with this, with this temple, this, uh, temple of Herod? Yeah. I mean, it, it, it is the temple of Herod and it's a beautiful architectural piece. Um, and, and I mean, you're right. This entire chapter is full of, of just cross references and it's bringing in like prophecies about immediate things that are going to happen in 70 AD with the destruction of the temple, but it's tying in all these kind of like spiritual allegories that relate to the church. And right off the bat, he, he sets it up for that very idea. I mean, what, what Jesus is saying here is no different than what he said in the Gospel of John, when he said, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. And right there, it sets up the idea that the, the temple is going to be replaced by a new temple, which is the body of Christ. And so, where, whereas the disciples, the disciples being focused on the stones is kind of analogous to the disciples being kind of tempted by the Old Testament and kind of thinking that Jesus is an Old Testament figure. And he's saying, no. The days of the temple are numbered. It's going to be it's going to be done soon. And while they're focused on the stones, that's going to be destroyed. Of which Jesus is going to share that suffering. I mean, Jesus is the re- rejected stone, and he's going to resurrect and create a new temple. And and this Peter gets into this when he says, "You are living stones, and you're being built up into a spiritual house, a holy priesthood. This is the new temple." That, that the Lord is building up. And Paul te- speaks in, in this same similar way in 2 Corinthians 3, talking about the fires that destroy the old temple, but the only foundation that endures is the foundation that's in Christ. So, so I see this as a very powerful statement of the old is coming to an end and the new is going to begin. The old temple with its stones is coming to an end and there's a new temple with new living stones founded on a new foundation, a new, a new rock. Yeah, you know, practically speaking, too, this temple was uh, extremely ornate and beautiful. It, you know, it was gilded in gold in places. This, in fact, uh, I think one, I forgot who, I don't know if it was Josephus or who it was, but I remember reading one historian who said that it was commonly said during that time that anyone who has not seen the Temple of Herod has seen nothing beautiful. You know, the yeah. the sun just shone off the the polished rocks or stones and uh, just you know, it was just beautiful to look at. I, I think it's also reflective yeah. of institutions in general. I mean, God had established, right. of course, his church in the Old Testament system of sacrifices and priesthood. But at the same time, it had kind of grown beyond what God's intentions were at four. And so many people put their faith, hope and trust in the institution, which is so beautiful now. That doesn't relate to a lot of us today because in our postmodern or post-postmodern and post-Christian era, you know, people are very suspicious of institutions. But it would have been very right. scandalous for Jesus to tell his disciples, you know, you see these great buildings, you know, the the temple, the courtyards and everything. It, it just won't be here one day. 
I don't think the disciples right. could even imagine a time when the temple wouldn't exist anymore. And yet that's what he's saying. It is very much deeper, as you were pointing out, but just even kind of on the ground, practically speaking, this would have been shocking to them. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's to use a modern idea, it's revolutionary, radical. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's the complete end of the old and a complete foundation for, for something that's going to be completely new and unlike anything seen before. Oh, absolutely. And so wherever they were going, well, actually, we know where they were going because it says in verse 3, <laughs> and as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us when these things will be. And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? So Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginnings of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in the synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations, and when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will be delivered or sorry, pardon, pardon me, brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father, his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Okay, I know that's a ton of text. All, most, yeah. <laughs> most of it read, most of it Jesus, right, speaking. So it's all extremely important. But, but you know, right. it, I wanted to give the context too because they ask him, you know, well, tell us, give, give us private information about when this stuff is going to happen. And, and I guess they could have expected this because often Jesus would speak sort of confusingly and, and like in parables and in other obscure ways in public and then tell them privately. So right, I just wonder, right. is this just them saying, okay, now's the time for you to explain to us what in the world you're talking about? Or were they wanting some, I don't know, extra information? I'm not sure. I don't know if you have a thought of that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, and you get three different, you know, from Matthew, Mark and Luke, you get three different references of who he's exactly speaking to. Um, Luke doesn't say that he, you know, it it just says he said, Matthew says he took the disciples and spoke to them privately. And then Mark, you know, narrows it down even more and says, it's just Peter, James, John, and Andrew, which is interesting in itself because usually it says Peter, James, and John, right? And now we got Andrew in there, which he's usually not added into that mix, but it's definitely a private gathering. Well, like back in Mark chapter five, where it says, you know, he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James and Mark chapter nine, of course, Peter and James and John are up on the mountain with Jesus during the transfiguration. Uh, You write here, Andrew's here also, Uh, you know, this inner circle of Jesus' disciples. Yeah, I'm not sure we can make, I'm not sure what to make. I guess let's put it that way. I, I suspect that this is just pretty normal fare. Whenever they get Jesus alone, he's usually going to be explaining something to them more deeply. And, and really he does, he doesn't chastise them or anything else for asking. He just tells them, well, actually he doesn't answer their question specifically, but he does tell them that you're going to see a lot of things, a lot of signs that suggest that the time has come, but isn't the case. Now, I guess the longer Jesus 
delays and thank God for his delay because we want all people to come to the knowledge of Christ. Right. But right. the longer he delays, I think the more people read into the signs of the age. I mean, this really is speaking to our right, this is right. speaking to our situation even today. Yeah, well, and that's justifiable because Jesus, I mean, it's the nature of God's word is that everything he says here is very, it's about this generation is the phrase he uses. So he's talking about a generation that existed in the first century. Yet clearly it's in the Bible. We don't just excise this chapter from the Bible because it's not about us. This is the nature of God's word is he says it, and then it kind of has a ripple effect or it sets up a type of how things happen. And so we're seeing these archetypal kind of things going on and on. Um, as far as the Peter, James, and John, I, I, I think, I mean, a big part of that is the witness. You know, witness is established by, the, by two or three witnesses. And I, I actually see this as kind of a foundation for what comes up later of, of when um, the Lord sends out the angels to gather the elect from the four winds. Sometimes I've wondered if God, if the Lord picked 12 disciples to be three witnesses in the direction of the four winds, you know, that's 12 total. But you kind of see that, you know, this, this embryo of that idea of, of as you had the apostles bearing witness to, you know, the, 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 these important events in the life of Christ. But I mean, that our, and that's an important thing people need to remember is that our faith is witness based. I mean, nothing of our faith is, you know, someone going off into the mountains and coming up with some philosophy. Our faith is something that is witness. People saw the transfiguration and, and were able to bear witness to that. I think that's a really important point, you know, and it's interesting. Yeah. The, the 12 disciples, the four corners of the earth. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think I've never really thought of that, but that certainly, yeah, certainly yeah, makes some sense. You can't, you can't deny that. It's a theory I've been kind of theory. I've been pushing out seeing what people think about this, <laughs> but I like it. Yeah. I like, I like it too. It. <laughs> I like it too. Well, you know, but your point about the witnesses is so important because yeah, you know, yeah. that's how the message of the kingdom continues to spread today. God in his infinite right. wisdom has not chosen to just, force people into faith, right? He, he does, his grace is right. for indeed for everyone, but it can be resisted. No, he uses us as instrument instruments. So I guess he's bringing these disciples in, he's telling them what's going to happen. But, you know, aside from some of the, you know, the things that are going to happen with the destruction of the temple, and we now on well, well on this side of those events, we could say, oh yeah, that most of a lot of this happened in 70 AD. Do you want to talk a little bit about right. that, about the siege of Jerusalem? Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, Christ's immediate reference point is a very literal event that happened in 70 AD. And that is, you know, it's within a generation of, or about a generation after the death of Christ. But there were events in Jerusalem, um, kind of what I call millenarian cults, which are uh, messianic movements that are looking for you know, a, a Jewish messianic movement that's going to have a very political quality. This is what Judas was. He was a zealot who, you know, was for Jewish independence, and they wanted to rebel against the, the, the Roman system, and they wanted to reestablish the kingdom of David. And that's what they thought Jesus was going to do. And when he didn't fulfill that, um, Judas abandoned him, and, and I mean, that's why he got crucified. Well, later zealots gathered together and, you know, tried to have a rebellion, and the Roman, Roman came uh, Emperor Titus sent the Roman army in there to completely destroy the temple. And this is actually, you know, th this is one of the first ones that happened again about 60 years after that, where Jerusalem was completely destroyed in the uh, Simon Bar Kokhba uh, revolution. And so it was at that point that Jerusalem ceased to be a, a Jewish city, you know, and to this day, I mean, this is obviously a big 
issue in the news today. But yeah, and, and so Jesus prophesied about that. And one of the interesting, and this comes up later in today's text, is you have some possible evidence that you had a, a group of Christians that heeded Christ's advice and then ran off to the city of Pella, which is right outside of Jerusalem. And because they abandoned the city, they were saved by that. that that's something that Eusebius, the church historian, told us about. Yeah, and, we, and this is not unusual for prophecy either, lest people be confused, that it's fulfilled sort of time and again. Um, we see, right, we call right. that proleptic fulfillment, and we see that uh, we see that time and again. And Jesus here, he points to signs that really occur throughout history. We can trace them from yeah. the first century, well, and then to the end of the world. Some of the signs haven't necessarily occurred yet, but I think it's important that when we look at him giving these signs— they are spread out over millennia, and they right, also right. are things, and see if you agree, but they're really things that happen in every generation also. Correct. Nation rising Absolutely. against nation, kingdom against kingdom, yep. earthquake. It's not, to, it's not to diminish those things because they are signs of the, of the end, but we also shouldn't get really worked up as, frankly, if I can be a little blunt, some of our brothers and sisters in Christ, perhaps mostly <laughs> in other traditions, Right now, they're they're so upset and so right. worried over things like the conflict in Israel because they they feel like those things are are some somehow symbolic of Christ's return. Signs of the end, right, right. right. But in verse, yeah, and, and this, well, the, the, the book book of Revelation kind of spiritualizes what Jesus says in these words. And you know, when you talk about the four horsemen of the apocalypse, in fact, Revelation six pairs up perfectly with. These end times discourses of Jesus in Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21. But you got the four horsemen, which are war, famine, and pestilence. And then you have always false Christs that go hand in hand with that. And then you have tribulation, and then you have, you know, martyrdom and all that. And that's exactly the the price. So if you if you match up these these end times discourses with Revelation 6, they, they match up perfectly. And what Revelation 6 is doing is because this is after 70 AD, possibly is it's, it's saying like, this is true for all time. You know, we're always going to have wars, uh, famine, pestilence. We're always going to have false prophets. And there's always going to be martyrdom. We had more martyrs last century than all up all other martyrdoms up until the 20th century. So it's still happening all over the globe today. Oh, indeed. I, you know, and I just want people to understand that, you know, the main thing that Jesus is really telling his disciples is that just what our guest said, you know, there are going to be trials and tribulations for those who follow after Christ. He says in verse 9, be on your guard for they, not might, not could, but will deliver you over to councils. You will be beaten in the synagogues. You will stand right. before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. So we see here right. that persecution for the Christians uh, is not something that is surprising to God or really should be surprising to us in any way. Right. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of heaven. That's, that's what St. Paul says, and, and it is through tribulation that we conform to the sufferings of Christ. It is part of the, the Christian faith. I mean, anybody who falls for the false doctrine of the prosperity gospel is completely missing the point. Um, the tribulation is something promised. And I always like to teach this and say, well, where does the tribulation come from? And I think the catechism nicely sets up the idea of the, the devil, the world, and our own sinful self. You know, the, the devil brings tribulation, the world brings tribulation, and our own sinful flesh brings us tribulation. Being a Christian means taking up the cross daily and following Christ. And that's a very real, real 
thing. It was real suffering. Well, the next verse, I think, also is something that challenges people. You know, Jesus tells us time and again that the Father knows the hour. It's all safe in God's keeping. You know, we can't really discern the exact day, and we'll never be able to, although we might be able to see the signs. Verse 10 says, and the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. Now, this concept of the gospel must be like proclaimed first to everybody before I return, that's kind of the sense of it. A lot of people take that to mean, um, well, as soon as everybody has had the opportunity to hear Christ or, or to reject or accept his message, depending on how you look at it, then he'll return. Um, how would you yeah. how would you answer someone who looks at it that way? Well, to me, I, I've never understood that because how does that work? I mean, there's constantly new babies being born. Like <laughs> you got it. So if you preach the gospel to everybody, you know, you know, by the time you get home from that last person you're preaching to, there's been four new baby or forty new babies born in the world. So I I just don't get how that works. I think this is just a general com, com, you know comment commentary on the, the the Christian teaching that God is patient. Um, you know, it's the parable of the wheat and the tares. The, the angels want to come in and, you know, you know, bring judgment like the disciples. Shall we bring judgment? And Jesus says, I came not to destroy men, but to save them. And, you know, in the book of Revelation, when you got the same moment, when the, when the martyrs are crying, you know, how long, Lord? When are you going to avenge our blood? And he gives them, you know, he says, wait. He gives them white robes and says, wait. We are in the period of saving men's lives, not destroying them. We're in the period of the church bearing testimony. And it, it could go on another 4,000 years. It could go another 40,000 years. You know, we don't know how long this is going to be, but this is, God is patient. God is patient. And that's what this is all about. When we were discussing the very similar issues back in Second Peter 3, I had a listener write in, his name is Alan, and he wrote this. He said, I admit to wondering why Jesus hasn't returned yet. You, talking about me, alluded to Paul writing as though the second coming was imminent. And yet here we are right. 2,000 years later. Since Paul was so in the know, how could he have gotten it so wrong? And then amusingly enough, he says, um, one of the thoughts on this that you said, and I paraphrase, God was patient, also wanting to reach as many people as he could so that many more could be saved mm -hmm. and enjoy eternal life. He says, there seems to be sort of a logical fallacy with this, and that is that people are constantly being born. <laughs> so he, he had the same <laughs> concern you did. Uh, which I, yeah, I don't yeah. disagree with at all. Um, maybe just for his benefit, though, um, do, would you agree with my thoughts that Paul was writing as though his coming was imminent? I, I believe Paul genuinely believed that Christ would return in his lifetime. I do, I do too. And I think there, there's like three different ways to look at this. Number one, Christ is coming. He's coming every week. Mm -hmm. He comes through the sacrament. And, and to me, the, the liturgy and the divine service is kind of a rehearsal, kind of a by faith experience of the end times. Everything that happens on the last days happens liturgically. Every Lord's Day, you know, the day of the Lord, Sunday. <laughs> and so in that sense, Christ is returning uh, two days from now. Secondly, Jesus is going to be returning within every one of our lifetimes, right? Because Jesus says, the one who believes in me will never taste or see death. So when we, you know, when we feel like we're dying, we're, we're never going to die. We're, we're going to see the Lord's coming. So each one of us at the end of our life is going to witness the coming of the Lord. And so, and that is within each of our lifetimes. So, you know, you know, if I drive out my car today and get in an accident, well, there's my day of the Lord right there. <laughs> right, right. So every one of us will experience the day of the Lord. And then in third, there's going to be the kind of the objective day of the Lord 
Um, and, and that's, you know, we need, so we, no matter what happens, whether it's for Sunday morning, whether it's for my possible death or whether it's for the, you know, the, the return of Christ, the second coming, we need to be prepared. That's the bottom line is we need to be prepared. And we, you know, the, the text talks about that. We can talk about that in a little bit. Right. Too. Yeah. And, and when I say things like God desires all people to be saved, I'm really just quoting scripture. And I guess there would yeah. be a little bit of a logical fallacy only in the sense that that's if you buy into the specific idea of, well, soon as everybody's had the opportunity, Christ is coming back. And, and that's just not what he's saying here. Um, but right. when he says that you'll be turned over to councils and you'll be put on trial, those are things that certainly happen to the disciples. Those are things that continue to happen to Christians today. Um, interestingly yeah. enough, and I grew up really hearing this as um, almost as an imperative to not study the word. And here's what I mean. When he says, don't be anxious beforehand about what you're to say, but say whatever's given oh, to yeah, you in yeah. that hour. Well, I grew up outside the Lutheran faith. So I grew up with pastors who didn't believe allegedly in preparing sermons. They just flopped open is, the Bible and is, they preached whatever the Holy Spirit gave them. Um, which is the opposite of what Jesus is saying. Here. <laughs> right. So let's tell me a little bit. Let, tell let me, me what explain. he is saying. So, okay, let me explain. This is fun. I've done, you know, I did some research on that and it's really interesting because if you pair this up with Matthew and Luke, Matthew says, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to the nation. So he, he focuses more on, he doesn't even bring up this whole, like, you know, like the Holy Spirit's going to be speaking through you. But he says the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to the nation. He focuses on the witness. And then Luke says, but it will turn out for you as an occasion for testimony. Therefore, settle it in your hearts not to meditate beforehand on what you will answer for I will give you a mouth and wisdom. Well, okay, so Jesus is going to give us a mouth and wisdom. So where is our, okay, I mean, you put all the pieces together. Where is our witness before the world in which we do not speak our own thoughts, but only speak the words of Jesus? It's, again, it's the divine service that happens on Sunday morning. So when I, as a pastor, prepare for Sunday, I'm exactly not trying to just see what my heart is coming up with and what I feel like, and nor are the people at church coming up with their own ideas and just kind of speaking from their heart, that's all comes from them. But when we speak and everything that happens liturgically on Sunday morning, our witness before the world that, you know, does get us in trouble, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm preaching based on what Jesus said from the gospel. And the people in the liturgy are responding with words, not their own words, but words scripted to them from the gospel, from God's word. So in fact, we, I mean, that would give me something to worry about if someone said, all right, pastor, you got to go up there in the pulpit and just say what comes to your mind. That terrifies me. <laughs> For sure. And Jesus says, don't, Jesus says, don't worry what you're going to say because he's going to give you the words. And he does. This Sunday, I, don't even, I haven't done my sermon yet, but there's a gospel and Jesus will give me the words to say. That's right. And for people going to church on Sunday, they don't have to worry about coming up with some testimony or coming up with something. They're going to be given the words to say in their hymnal. <laughs> and they just, so they just need to say those words. And, you know, this is the, they are being given Jesus's mouth and wisdom. They're being given something to say. So, I mean, I, I look at it as like, like a real support for, for the way we do worship, the, the formal worship and liturgical worship we do. We are literally given the words of Jesus to say in exact fulfillment 
of what Jesus talks about. Yeah, it sounds a more a lot more like don't be using your own wisdom, but rather use the wisdom exactly. that I give you. Yeah, it makes sense to me, brother. Exactly. So I'll tell you what, we're going to give yeah. our listeners a few minutes to contemplate uh, what you just said while we listen to these messages. But <laughs> folks, don't go anywhere because Pastor Burfind and I will come back and we'll keep on going through Mark chapter 13. We'll see you on the other side. These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan 316. Welcome back, dear listeners. I'm Pastor Phil Boo, your host, and this is Thy Strong Word. With me this morning is the Reverend Peter Burfine. He's the pastor of Agnes Day Lutheran Church in Marshall, Michigan, and Our Savior Lutheran Church in Union City, Michigan. And we're talking about the Gospel of Mark, chapter 13. Before we head back into our text, I just want to remind you that if you have any questions or comments, um, any feedback about the show, you just want to say hello, feel free to reach out. You can email me at pastorboo at gmail.com. You can find me on Facebook too. Just search for Phil Boo. You'll know which one's me. Any of these methods can get your question or comment out on the air. Well, Pastor, before the break, we had just gotten to the point where um, right after he says, it's not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And then he gives some pretty devastating news. He says, brother will deliver brother over, father his children, children against their parents, and you'll be hated by all for my name's sake. But then he says, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. So I think that we certainly can understand that Christians have been persecuted throughout history, even by people of their own family. The enduring part, now I think we know from the rest of Scripture that we are equipped to endure by the power of the Holy Spirit, but sometimes it does really feel like we're kind of on our own in the world trying to endure the yeah. onslaught of the enemy. Um, so yeah. Jesus is, I, I know it just doesn't feel very comforting coming from Jesus, but it certainly is important for us to know. Take us through why yeah, he I shares mean, this. I, I say faith is not faith unless it, it involves a, a certain patience and endurance. You know, a faith, I mean, it's literally the faith of what was it, the seed that fell on the rocks. You know, you, 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 you blossom and flourish for a little while, but then as soon as hardship comes along, you give it up. Well, that by definition is not faith. Um, we, you know, we are to hold our faith to the end. And yeah, it's through, through many tribulations and, and many attacks from the devil, the world and our sinful flesh. Um, th- this passage, interestingly, Mar- Matthew glosses over by saying, and because lawlessness will abound, the, many of, the love of many will grow cold. And to me, I... I, I definitely see our time as reflecting that idea of just lovelessness abounding and people isolated from one another and, you know, everybody quick to lash out at one another. 
And in, in many ways, Christians have to really endure through that and, and keep up our love of neighbor, our love of self, our love of, of the, the Lord in the midst of this kind of lashing out and cynicism and skepticism towards any sort of order or truth or nobility or goodness or beauty at all. This is the age we live in. I mean, I definitely see this as a repeated thing going on right now. Well, I think it's a reminder to us too, though, because the, the you talk about the love growing cold. Well, our love can't yeah. grow cold for even those who are enemies of the faith. Right, right. You know? Exactly. Yes, we're hated by all for Christ's name's sake. As long as that is why we're hated, we should always self be right. self-examining so to make sure that maybe they hate us because we're just jerks. So we got to be careful. <laughs> but but Peter talks about right, that. he does. But if we are um, obviously honestly being persecuted for Christ's name, then basically Jesus is saying that shouldn't come as any surprise to you. But we right. also shouldn't let that. I guess, inhibit our ministry, even to those people who hate us. It certainly didn't stop Jesus. Well, we're going to go into... Well, and, and the, go ahead. Okay, yep, go ahead. Well, yeah, that, that is one of the great witnesses that Christians have always had, is, is not that they can, you know, prove themselves right, but that they can love their enemies, and, and that love, you know, does conquer. I mean, it conquered the Roman Empire. Yeah, it's a little hokey, but I saw something on Facebook that said something like uh, the measure of of Christianity is not just loving Christ, but loving Judas. <laughs> and I, I kind of get what the sentiment <laughs> is. One of those sort of boomer yeah. means, but I get it. I get it. And it's true. Yeah, we yeah, yeah. have to do that. Well, why don't we go yeah. ahead and move on with the abomination of desolation? Uh, this one has also causes people trouble, starting with verse 14. Jesus continues, but when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down or enter his house to take anything out, and let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. Oh, and alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now, and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. That's the end of verse 23. So yeah, Jesus is saying, listen, the main yeah. reason I'm telling you this is so that you won't be surprised. But we're still surprised because, especially looking at it from the point of view of the disciples who are first hearing it, would they, and help me understand, would they even understand what he was talking about when he said abomination of desolation? Do we? What does all this mean? I think they did because the abomination of desolation was prophesied by Daniel, the prophet, mm -hmm. and they kind of understood it fulfilled by, um, oh man, I can't remember his name, but the uh, intertestamental character Antiochus, Antiochus right. Epiphanes, you know, about two, three hundred years before Christ. So they, they understood that concept. And like, again, like God's word, it's an ongoing, like a ripple effect. It kind of crescendos. And I mean, I think the abomination of desolation will, you know, is ultimately fulfilled in the Antichrist. But in this context, its first immediate reference is the destruction of the temple. Um, if you match it up with, you know, Luke and Matthew and their, you know, Jesus's words there, these are the days of vengeance on Israel. This is Jer Jerusalem surrounded by enemies. 
that's when the desolation is near. So the abomination of desolation is definitely um, basically the, the Lord saying, uh, you know, there's going to be this anti-Christian, you know, event happening. And, you know, when you see the wrath of God coming, run, <laughs> don't fight, don't freeze, but flight. You know, you know, they always talk about fight, flight or freeze. Flight is the answer. <laughs> that's the correct answer. Run. Um, you know, and it's kind of parallels in the book of Revelation where, where uh, it says, come out of her, my people. When Babylon is undergoing their, their judgment or when Babylon is in, in high fornication gear, you know, at that point, Christians need to, you need to abandon ship and, and leave for another place. Or I, I mean, I even make an example of uh, Christians fleeing Europe for America, you know, to, to find a place where they can, you know, safely practice their faith. But I think this is kind of a statement of Jesus for all time is, is, in, in the in the freeze fight or flight schema flight is the answer right well and as you you know already explained we see again here more prophecy being proleptically fulfilled over and over right, again right. you mentioned um antiochus epiphanes he sets up an altar to zeus in the temple at jerusalem sacrifice some pigs on it so you know that's in first maccabees yeah, yeah. here jesus yeah. foretells that something's going to happen again in jerusalem and we know it does by the romans um, and then, as yeah. you pointed out, the Antichrist is on its way. But, but yeah. of course, the spirit of the Antichrist is everywhere. So we're going to see this constant replacing the things of God with the things of man, replacing those things which right. ought to point to uh, the true God with things that point away from him. Uh, we can certainly argue right. that some of this has been fulfilled um, throughout the history of the church, um, in the papacy and other things. There's all kinds of mm -hmm. ways in which the enemy has, I guess, made camp in the house of God, and, and it's what he's warning them about. Um, right. So he is he is telling them flee. I like how you put that. You know, no fight or flee, and that's good, important too, because when the God doesn't need our help, <laughs> so even in right, exactly, even in the last <laughs> days, you know, he's not he hasn't conscripted us into his army. Basically, we right. we shouldn't. Hmm, how can I say this so that people don't under, misunderstand it? Yes, we're eager for Christ to return, but the Bible's also pretty clear that the day of the Lord is pretty bad even for believers. It's right. not a fun time. For the elect, yeah. Yeah. So he's— Well, and, and it's a very important point you just said. I mean, when we pray that kingdom come, we're not praying to ourselves. We're praying to the Lord, and we're yielding to his building of his kingdom. We do not take up arms. Now, what's interesting is this group of Christians that left Jerusalem, and, and I think this is—I think Jesus is actually prophesying about this. This group of Christians that leaves Jerusalem, they go settle in Pella. But this group was related to the Ebionites, which were a Judaizing sect that remained in Jerusalem and lived there. And they ended up becoming sort of wrapped up into this Simon Bar Kokhba revolt. And he was a false messiah. So I think like that's always a temptation. And you get the same dynamic when Christians came over to America as you kind of, you know, they leave, they leave a, a persecution area. But then they kind of leave thinking they're going to build this utopia. And it all centers around this usually very puritanical leader who's going to you know, make a utopian here on earth. And they end up becoming a false Christ. And you see this movement happening over and over again. In, in America is the hotbed of it because anybody can kind of rise up and say, hey, we're going to leave the world and create our own utopian you know, kingdom where you know, we're going to be pure. And then they usually have a very, you know, legalistic, moralistic leader that that's becomes the center of this cult. And I, I think Jesus's words are just like spot on as far as what we need to be careful of when, when, 
when we flee, when we flee the world, we don't set up a utopia with a with a Christ like character. Well, in that 130 Jewish war by Bar Kokhba, he claims to be the Messiah. And we see people right. claiming to be the Jewish Messiah come or the Christian right. Messiah returned. But as you as you already said, really, you don't have to claim a religion to be a false Christ. You don't have to claim right. God or even the mantle of Christ. Anyone who just sets themselves up as sort of the savior of the people, yeah. that that is a false Christ kind of thing to do. <laughs> so, so which is which is why every time that you have the mention of the four horsemen, every time you have a mention of of a, a war, pestilence, and famine. You always have false Christ right after that. And the question is why? Well, it's because the world, when, when there is war, famine, and pestilence, when they're confronted by that, they're looking for a savior type figure, like Fauci. You know, they're looking for someone that they can put all their hopes and dreams on and basically say, this guy is going to save us. You know, and, you know, Hitler had this, communism had it, you know, people that are going to... You know, people that are going to save the world from, from the evils of the four horsemen. And so that's why, to me, that's one of the scourges of God's punishment, really, is war, famine, pestilence, and then the false prophets that arise that people think that are going to be their saviors, but end up just actually being a scourge to them. That makes a ton of sense. Um, you know, I hadn't guess yeah. I thought of it exactly like that before, but right. I mean, Sin brings in all kinds of disasters, um, and then we are looking for ways to save ourselves from the consequences of sin. Yep. There's only one way; yep. it's Christ. But yeah, even yeah. but there are even like really well-meaning Christians. You mentioned Fauci, but we could say that you know a lot of the imagery around President Obama when he was being nominated was very messianic. A lot of folks treat yes. uh, President Trump the same way. Um, you oh, can yeah, go back absolutely. in history, and every probably every almost every president or leader had some sort of following that was kind of sycophantic and, and really saw right. them as the savior, even if that particular leader didn't share that. So I think we can also make people into false Christ, even if that's not what they're trying to do. Absolutely. Whenever we, whenever our hopes and dreams are put on someone, I mean, when, when Obama said, you know, we are the ones we've been waiting for and I believe that we can set up the kingdom of God on earth. I mean, he was very specifically yeah, pretty direct. appealing to this messianic. But I think you're right. As we see Christianity having less and less an influence on, on the hearts and minds of us, we are going to increasingly be looking to these political figures or spiritual religious figures that are going to, so, you know, quote unquote, save us. And I think that's a dynamic Christ clearly warns against here. Well, I'm sure we could keep talking about this forever, but I do want to continue oh, yeah. in our yeah. lesson. Verse 24 says, but in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. So pausing there for just a moment at the end of 27. So he says, after all of these things that are happening, but remember, there are things that continue to happen throughout history. After those things, then you're going to see something, the coming of the Son of Man. Um, yeah. Yeah. Describe this for us. I mean, break it down. Yeah. So this is a reference to Daniel 7 that talks about the, the Son of Man coming with clouds. Um. Matthew connects it with the sign of the Son of Man appearing in heaven, which is a, a quote of, uh, I think, Zechariah, 
you know, they will look on him whom they have pierced. But I think this relates again to, you know, where do we see Christ? John, John really brings this up a lot in, in his, his gospel, which is, I think John is kind of the one that takes these very literalistic things that Jesus said and kind of spiritualizes them so we can understand them for the church today. But in a very real way, we do see Christ coming, you know, coming with power and glory every Lord's Day. You know, I mean, we, we see the, the coming of Christ by faith, of course, but it's just as the disciples in the road to Emmaus, you know, they, they saw Jesus in the breaking of bread. So I think that, I mean, again, again, everything that happens liturgically in the divine service is a rehearsal and, and kind of something by faith that, that, that happens, everything that happens on the Lord's day at the end of time, including the vision of the Lord. So I think, I think that's, that's what's going there. But, um, yeah, we, you know, as we witness Holy Communion and, and then mourn because of our sins. I mean, that's another part of the Zechariah prophets. They will look on him whom they have pierced and mourn. But yeah, this is, this is a very interesting part of the text. He continues, from the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. All right, again, taking another pause. A couple of verses when taken out of context, and especially, you know, in the traditions that we've been handed down, I'm afraid. The versification's great for, the, for finding things in the Bible, but it has destroyed biblical literacy in some ways. Right, because we right. think that each little chunk is sent down from heaven. Well, anyway, it's not that right. case. Jesus is talking in the context of what he's been saying, and he says, uh, really, I guess to summarize it in a couple words, I would say he's saying, there's no excuse for you to be surprised when it happens. Not that right. there's some secret calculation that we can use to you know, contemplate or calculate it. He's just saying, you know the signs. But then, and this is the one that people trip up on, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all the things take place. Grammatically, it's perfect. Right. It makes sense. But I think some people think that he's saying the generation to whom he's speaking won't pass away. And then they question even right. Jesus was wrong about when he was coming back. I've heard uh, critics of the Bible say that. Obviously, he doesn't mean that. What does he mean? Yeah, it, and it's a tough one because generation very clearly does mean like a span of 25 to 30 years concurrent with the time that you say it. So when you say generations, that's talking about like, 25 to 30 year segments over and over again. So he's very clearly talking very literally about that time. However, again, like God's word, it's, it, there's a ripple effect. There's a continuation. And, and there's a good parallel when, when Jesus says, I will not eat of the fruit of the vine again until I eat it with you in my kingdom. So you read that and it sounds like, oh, well, Christ isn't going to have communion with us until, you know, he comes again and we go to heaven and be with him. Yet, Two chapters later, he's communing with, or he's eating of the fruit of the vine with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. So there, there's a mystical fulfillment of these things. And in that same sense, I would say there's a, a mystical or typological or however you want to put it. There's a mystical fulfillment of this generation. Every one of us lives in this generation. When, when St. Peter preached on, in Acts 2 and said, you know, be saved from this perverse generation, it, it, that can absolutely be said today. You know, it's not like the perverse generation ended when that generation died. Unfortunately, so I think yeah. it, it's a, it's, it, there is a very literal meaning and there was a literal destruction of Jerusalem. But again, this is typological and, and sets, establishes kind of a, 
the basis for an echo effect throughout history or a reverberation of, of this same event that happens over and over again in Christian history. And, and I would also contend that when he says, I say to you, this generation, he very well is also talking about the generation that's present when the end times begin. That is that Correct. when Christ, when the son of man returns, it's, it's, it's going to, it's going to be one thing after the other. It doesn't set up. It isn't like a thousand year earthly reign as we right, judge people. Right. No, you know, when you see him coming, that generation is not going to pass away until everything is done. I believe it. I believe oh, yeah, it refers like to all these things. And um, yeah, yeah. So I, I let's keep on going because we're almost to the end of our text. But he continues to be very yeah. challenging. Verse thirty-two. But concerning that day or hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Mm -hmm. Keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and he puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to everybody, stay awake. So mm -hmm. Jesus says the whole buildup to you not knowing when he's coming isn't don't worry about it. It's be prepared. Right. Be prepared. Exactly. Don't worry about it, but be prepared. Yeah. The, I mean, this whole idea of watch comes, I mean, there's so many other texts that inform what Jesus is meaning here. And, and what it, it, what's interesting is that it, there's kind of ambiguity on whether is Jesus a thief in the night that's coming or is he the master of the house that's coming? <laughs> Sometimes you have the same verse that it's like, it's almost like the word is switched. Is it the master of the house returning to his home or is it a thief in the night? And I think Paul helps explain this when he, he kind of says like, yeah, Christ is coming. It'll be in the darkness and we don't know the day is coming. But he says, you guys are not in darkness. You guys are in the light. So you're going to be ready. And it, you get the same idea in the parable of the uh, 10 virgins where you need the light. The light helps us recognize the face of the one at the door. So he doesn't seem like a thief. And what is the light? The light is the word of God. So, we, we, I mean, if you do a list of all the things that it means to be prepared, it means, you know, to be very anchored in God's word, to be very anchored in the faith that has been passed on to us through, through the Apostles' Creed. It means putting on the breastplate of faith and love and hope. And finally, it means prayer. These are the ways that we kind of keep the light on and, and we're ready. So when Christ comes, we're like, ah, there's Jesus. We see him. We see we recognize him whom he has, has been pierced. We recognize the pierced one. We're not going to be deceived by someone else that comes that appears like Christ that, you know, might set up that thousand year reign or might set up a utopian kingdom. No, we're waiting for the one that's going to flash like lightning from the east. And we're going to recognize him immediately as Jesus. There's going to be a trumpet and we'll know for sure that it's Jesus because we've been anchored in the word of God in prayer. I like that image you used about needing the light to recognize the face of our savior yeah. or the face of the bridegroom yeah. in that one example. Uh, yeah. He doesn't know the day or hour, not even the sun, he says. Um, I'm assuming that this is because of his state of humiliation. Jesus certainly would know now, but he doesn't always make full use of his divine omniscience. But I, I think that still troubles people, this concept that the angels don't know. Okay, they can get on board with that. But how does Jesus <laughs> not know? Yeah, I mean, it, and it's the same uh, paradox going on when, when the Bible will say things like, Jesus learned through his suffering. Well, why does, if God knows all things, what is, can he possibly learn? Mm -hmm. Or what, when it says in Luke 4, you know, Jesus grew in understanding. Well, what would he have to grow in if he's God? 
or in Matthew 28, when Jesus says, all authority has been given to me. Well, if you're the son of God, when did you have all authority already? He's speaking by his human nature. I mean, that's, just, that's what's going on here. This is his human nature. And he humbled himself, took the form of a bondservant, um, and he emptied himself. That's the phrase. He emptied himself of his claims to his divine powers. I find this a little amusing, only in the sense that you know, those who, who are hostile to the faith, hostile to Christians, uh, you know, antagonist of the Bible, they might stumble across some of these things. And it's almost as if they found like a piece of candy and they can't wait to share it. And yeah. they come and they try to attack you with it. Like we've never thought of it before. Right. Right. <laughs> it's like, like oh. for 2000 years, we haven't been dealing with Yeah, this. exactly. Oh, that never occurred to us. Well, I guess we'll just close <laughs> up shop. I'll call the Pope. We'll turn off the lights on the way out. No, I mean, you know, we understand that the Bible is written to those who have faith, right? Those who have ears to hear, let them hear. So right. I, that's why I always say that the Bible is for people. It can only really be truly understood in faith. One, right. one of the things right. Jesus says too, or I guess I should say doesn't say that troubles people is he talks in the third person. He talks about the son of man coming. He will send out the angels. Uh, he will do these things. He will be near, et cetera, et cetera. Um, speculate a little bit. Why doesn't Jesus say, when I come back, why is he always talking about like you know, as if it's somebody else? I did not think about that in my preparation, but I think, I mean, he's saying that it is a fascinating detail. And I think it gets to this whole idea of witness that even like it's, I think in John's that Christ said something to the effect of, you know, I don't bear witness of myself. You know, like, like Jesus never really came out and said, I am the Lord God, you must worship me. I mean, he always waited for people to bear witness and kind of like, who do you say that I am? You know? So he, he never really exerts his, himself even, being God, he doesn't assert himself, which is really speaks to, you know, the, the Lord emptying himself and taking the form of a bondservant, humbling himself. But even Christ himself is bearing witness to, you know, almost himself, right, you know, like right. the son of man will do this. So I, I think that's what's going on with that. But it's, it's his humility. It's his humility and, and bearing witness. Exactly. He's bearing witness about himself, but in a way that is humble. Um, you know, it, yeah, I guess if yeah. I had to compare it a little bit, I might think of, you know, John calling himself the, the beloved one, you know, he, right. he, he mentions himself in it, but he does it in such a way that focuses on God's love and not his, you know, himself. But yeah, I, yeah, well, I mean, he, what is John? I, I'm nothing but one that Jesus loves. Right. I'm not even, I don't even, who cares who I am? I'm just one that Jesus loves. Well, and I know we're not in John, but that always confused me growing up right. because I always thought, well, that's kind of arrogant. Like he's saying, I'm the one that yeah, Jesus yeah. loves. But, you know, when I learned that Jesus loved everybody, then it made more sense. <laughs> well, and, and I think we pastors have to take the same thing because we have to kind of sometimes when, when we teach about the ministry, you know, the right. Bible says a lot of almost like glorious things about a pastor, like submit to him, be obedient, uh, you know, for his work and says all these things. And pastors are kind of like, eh, I don't want to push that stuff. But sometimes we do. And we have to bear witness to our own office sometimes, not in this prideful, like, hey, you must obey me. But almost in a sense of, hey, you know, the, the minister has been placed there by God and and we are to submit to his teaching and, and you know, obey him, Hebrews says. And it, I think it's that same kind of tone. It's like you have to almost have to bear witness to and think about, the, you know, lay people, too. They have to bear witness to their own status when they themselves know their own sins, That's right. they know their weaknesses. And sometimes they literally have to bear witness and say, I'm a baptized child of God. You know, I, I am part of the communion of saints and, and, you know, I, I bear witness to myself. 
Well, I tell you what, we're at the end of our time together and the end of our text. We made it through, although we really could spend just forever on this oh, chapter. It is an amazingly, you know, for as fast paced as Mark is and sometimes as concise as he is, it doesn't make it any less complicated. In fact, sometimes it makes it more complicated. But I appreciate you so right. far. Anything else you want to uh, make sure people know before we wrap up the show today? Oh, man, I, had so, I only went through like half my notes. And, <laughs> I'm and sure. I, I, we could do another show on this, but no, this is tons of tons of good stuff there. And, and uh, I mean, the, the, the big theme of it all, it all, I think, is the concluding parts is watch. Yeah. Keep the light on by keeping anchored in the word of God as you were taught it, as you were taught it from the Apostles' Creed. And be in prayer. Be in prayer, Jesus says. Well, folks, if you have any questions or comments about anything in this text that we did not cover, or you want to reach out to my guest to get his insight on something that you can still send me an email, pastorboo at gmail.com. I'll make sure the messages get to him. Well, for now then, I'd like to thank my guest this morning, the Reverend Peter Burfine. He's the pastor of Agnes Day Lutheran Church in Marshall, Michigan, and Our Savior Lutheran Church in Union City, Michigan. Thanks, Pastor, for being on the show. Thank you, Pastor, as well. Can't wait to have you back. Now, folks, tomorrow we're going to open up chapter 14. We're just going to get through the first 25 verses. And even as Jesus faces betrayal and denial now by his own disciples, he lovingly serves them at the final Passover meal where he institutes the Lord's Supper, declaring the bread and wine to be his true body and blood, which is given and poured out for the forgiveness of sins. And despite the even coming abandonment that Jesus knows about, he comforts them with the promise of salvation, and that is what we'll talk about and a lot more tomorrow. So until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray, Father, keep us in thy strong hand.